So I'm going to read verses 31 through 34, and then we'll be focusing on the last two verses of this. The word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Let's pray again. Father, be with preaching, hearing of your word. We thank you for this great message of forgiveness and assurance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So again, we're here and Paul is wrapping up the first part of this letter um, to the church in Rome, and he begins by telling them in, in, in this letter of um, the greatness of man's sin and their own sin and how far short everyone falls, that all fall short of the glory of God and how mankind is without excuse before this holy God who will bring all sin into judgment and is bringing all sin into judgment, as he tells us in this letter. But then he goes on to tell them of the greatness of God in his saving of sinners through faith in Jesus Christ, whereby he justifies them, declaring believers in him to be righteous in the sight of God. And so beginning the beginning of chapter 8 here tells us, let's look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 8. He says, there is now no condemnation. And this is this part of the the chapter is, is, is saying this again in so many different ways that he really wants us to get this, that as believers who are hidden in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God, who has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so now here, toward the end of chapter 8, he reasserts his great proclamation of this great salvation that's been achieved and secured for us by Jesus Christ. And that we should um, be aware that of this finished work for us as we go throughout all of our life. As we're maybe constantly, at least occasionally, frequently, maybe even tormented at times by guilt or remorse for things that we may have done in the past. But that he is telling us that... He is for us. Whereas we might not think we're good enough. And indeed, in and of ourselves, we are not good enough. But he says this in chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, a charge. You know what charges are. You know, it might mean... I don't know if you personally know what it means to be brought up on charges, but we've all seen TV shows or been to a courtroom or something, but this is courtroom language. Who's going to bring a charge against you? 
What, what possible charge could be brought against any of us? And, you know, if you, it doesn't take you long to think about that, that if anybody was to charge you with some sin against God, um, I mean, the charges could pile up rather quickly. And yet here he's saying to us, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So that's like a, that's a, a different group of people. It's not just everybody in the whole world. And he's not just saying who's going to bring a charge against you like as if okay, you haven't done anything wrong ever. But think of yourself now as God's elect. And I know that's like a Calvinist thing, but it's biblical. I mean, that's the word right there. Elect, called, chosen, loved by God. This is, this is the word. So if God has elected those to faith, then he's saying is, this is who you are. Who's going to bring a charge against you? And it's a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is one of those questions that, that you're not really supposed to answer. It's just the answer is obvious. Who? And the, the rhetorical answer is there's nobody that can bring a charge against you. So it's sort of an odd thing, though. So if we're thinking, okay, so nobody can bring a charge against us in this, in this courtroom. Um, the world can be very judgmental. I mean, the world looks at Christians, especially if we um, begin to talk about sin, if we talk about the need for love of Christ, we talk about the need for repentance, we talk about, you know, maybe um, morality as defined by God. Well, the world's going to just swoop in, and depending on how more vocal or how more of a light you're shining, how more visible you are in the world, um, they can find things. That are going to be maybe from your past, from your present. You know, you're not sinless. And so Jesus Christ is the only person who ever lived that they could find no wrong in him and still put him to death. But the world could very well accuse you. And you can feel it and sense it at times, but this is what the world can do because we also have this accusation of the flesh. Our own sin that we are well aware of, our sin can accuse us and say, who are you to be a Christian? Who are you to be serving the Lord? Who are you to be going to church, dressing up like that, or doing this, or doing reading the Bible, and thinking God is for you? Who are you? Obviously, you're not saved, or you would be better than you are. All these accusations, all these charges being brought against us by our own flesh, and then, of course, there's Satan, the demonic realm, the diabolos, the, the, the Satan, the, the accuser of the brethren. This is the brethren. This is what he does. Accusing, and even we see in Zechariah, he's, he's going before the Lord and, and accusing the priests of being in dirty clothes. You know, there's this whole thing. And then just accusing day and night the brethren. And so Satan is, is a master psychologist. I mean, think about it. You've been alive for the whole time of the human race. You, you've seen people. You've got to know people. You, you, you know People, you're smart, you know all sorts of things greater than we do. And so trying to outwit Satan, trying to argue with Satan, trying to do these things, you know, it's like, uh-uh. What you say to Satan is, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you. Yeah, be done with it. Don't, don't wrestle with him. It's, it's a matter of resisting the devil and he flees from you because of Christ Jesus. But there are charges that he can easily make, and yet there's a reason that they don't stick. Because we're told here it is God who justifies at the end of verse 33. 
So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. I like, I like saying it like that. It's God who justifies. It's God who justifies. And so this is, this is God, the Almighty, Holy, 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 God Almighty, the judge of all has already rendered a verdict for believers. It's already been done. Not guilty. Righteous. All the righteousness of Christ credited to you. It's already done. Now there's a, a future judgment that comes and all this sort of thing, but when you stand before God in judgment, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's good news. Because if you stand there naked and ashamed, as in the garden, trying to hide yourself, people trying to you know, take fig leaves and cover it up, no, only God can cover our sin. Only God can cover our sin. So that he can say and we can proclaim, guess what? For the believer, there is now no condemnation. The opposite of justification is condemnation. If a, if a person on death row, if a person is on death row because they have been condemned. That's why they're there. But if somebody comes in, the, the governor can call and pardon, and he's let go. But we haven't been just pardoned. We've been declared righteous. We've been declared not guilty, righteous, so that not only are we set free from this condemnation, but now we have a right to the inheritance of all the sons of God because we've been declared righteous. No condemnation. And even inheritance of all the treasures in heaven. Because we've been adopted as his, as his children. So all these things are rich, especially here in Romans. But this is the God Almighty, judge of all, has rendered the verdict of not guilty, of righteous, and therefore no condemnation. So who's going to bring a charge against that? I mean, people might do it, but it's like, are you kidding me? It's like going up to a rich man and saying, he's got no money. It's like, here, here. You know, it's like, it's just, it makes no sense. So for the believer, the elect in Christ, the elect of God to be charged with charges that could bring condemnation. It's like, there is no condemnation. There's just justification. There's just righteousness in Christ Jesus. And that should be very encouraging to us. And this is what Paul's trying to do. He's doing with the, with the Roman church who's about to go through great persecution. He's already told them of the great sinful nature of man, how there's condemnation and there's judgment of man, but in Christ there's justification. So how do I know I'm going to stand? How do I know I'm going to make it? How do I know that God's really for me? It's like, because there's no condemnation. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? And then in 34... Who is to condemn? So he brings it right there. Who's, who is there to condemn? And again, rhetorical. And I think the NIV even says no one. You know, they, they add that for you. In case you thought there might be somebody out there who is. There's not. There's no one to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And so um, God has declared the ungodly, ungodly sinners to be righteous. And how did he do it? Because he tells us he is, in Romans, he's just and justifier of those who will believe. So God can't just go in and say, oh, let's just not worry about it. I will set aside my holiness. I will set aside my justice. I'll just set all that aside and we'll just say, let's just act like that never happened and we'll just go on in. It's like, that's not what God does. God 
declares us just. He provides a sacrifice and gives us his righteousness so that he sets up before the foundations of the world a, a law that says, it's federal headship, you were represented in Adam because every one of us, if you were Adam, you'd have done the same thing probably quicker and more boldly. Okay, so we were represented and we were in him. But now we are in Christ as believers. We're taken out of that line and put into this line so that Christ represents us. We are in Christ, no longer in Adam. So what did God do to be able to declare ungodly sinners righteous? And it was by the substitution of Jesus Christ, his death in our place for those who are the believers in him. And so we see here, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Now, John Murray in a commentary writes this. We now come across four elements of Christ's redemptive work as guaranteed security. So we're going to see four things that Jesus Christ has done to redeem us from the curse of the law, to save us. Those four things that he's done and that secures our salvation. So it's not like you get saved and so now start doing better and, you know, all your past sins are forgiven, but, wow, you've blown it again, so now you're unsaved. So what are you going to do now? Well, I don't know, go get baptized again. Let's try it again. Now this time do better. Okay, and how long does it take you before you realize? I mean, Martin Luther was struggling with this idea of, you know, I'm, I'm forgiven by confessing my sins to a priest. I'm forgiven by partaking of sacraments. These things actually provide me forgiveness. But particularly when he would go in to confess his sin, that he would confess a sin and then he'd walk out and then he'd be like, oh, I thought of another sin. Well, it happens if I don't confess all my sins. One sin can condemn me. So he goes back in and I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's the, 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 the story is that the priest said, Martin, go out and do some kind of sin before you come back to me. Get, do something that's really bad for you. Come back. All these things. You're just like, nobody can live like this. And he's like, but this is what you're telling me. And then he discovers that the righteous shall live by faith. By faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so the way that God does this first in Jesus Christ is, he says, it is Christ Jesus who died. So I want to look first at, at died so it's Christ Jesus who, who died. And so look at Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to read verses 8 through 10. So Romans 5, beginning of verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a good thing probably to go through Romans and just circle the for us everywhere that you see in there. That Christ, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we're saved from God, by God, and for God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So it is the death of Christ that is instrumental, that is the cause of our salvation. And then um, the second part of this first part is, it's Christ Jesus who died. Okay, he died, and that was something that had to happen for us, but I couldn't die for 
people, you couldn't die. Even if you happened to be able to live a sinless life, your life was not valuable enough to account for anybody else's life. And so a mere human, even you know, a, a logical impossibility because we're, we're dead in our sin and we're um, guilty in Adam. But if it was just a mere human who had been born of a virgin and lived a perfect life, which would not be able to happen, um, but still it'd be like, okay, good job. You know, you didn't, you're not sufficient enough to overturn what has already happened. Now, if Adam had lived a sin, sinless life, he would have been a representative and, you know, things would have been different. But God had a better, different plan. But it had to be the perfect son of God, not just because, one, only he could really. I mean, think about it. It's not just that you have restrained yourself from sin but never even a moment in your entire life was there ever a second where you entertained the idea of possibly sinning. I mean, that's a sin. To want to sin, but to restrain yourself from it, that's a sinful thought. That's a sin. It's good that you restrained yourself, but it's still a sinful thought. Jesus never had a sinful thought, never had a sinful inclination. Any sinful temptations that happened to him all came at him externally, and he was able to withstand even those things. So this is the God who died for us. This is Christ Jesus who died for us. Now, just so that we can take that in a little better, turn to keep your place here in, in Romans 8, but then turn to um, John, the Gospel of John, just, you know, John chapter 1, which most of you may be familiar with, but listen to it again, thinking this is Jesus Christ. This is he who died for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. This is all about Jesus Christ. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all men might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Again, this is Jesus Christ. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And he goes, oh, I keep reading these things about who is Jesus. So don't forget that Jesus died for you. Jesus Christ is the one whom died, who died for you. And then back, keep your place there in Romans. You just got to look one more place. Revelation chapter 1. And so we get another description of who Jesus Christ is. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are on the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood 
and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who has become the Almighty. Jesus Christ for us. As long as we're in Revelation, go ahead, go to chapter 19, and look at verse 11. It is always good to be reminded of just who our Savior is, because the world certainly would want us to just think of him as a baby in a manger, or just a carpenter, or just a guy. He's, you know, he's one of us. What is that little thing they're doing now? He's like us, or something weird like that. It's like, yeah, but there's more. There's much more. So in Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on him is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. These are beautiful crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name, the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This is us, by the way, in, in Revelations, the church is coming. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He gets us. Thank God he got us. And saved us from the wrath of God so that we become the riders on the white horses. Washed our robes in his blood so that we might be on his side. And not who he is against. For we were by nature children of wrath, the Bible tells us. Just like the rest of mankind. But there is salvation in Christ Jesus from the wrath of God. So it is, first, Christ Jesus who died. And then secondly, more than that, who was raised. This is Revelation 8, I mean Romans 8. More than that, so it's not just it is Christ Jesus who died. More than that, he's raised. So what we're going to see is this, it gets better. Okay, he died, but he also had to die. But his resurrection from the dead proves that his death was accepted because his life and person was worthy and sufficient as a sacrifice for all who would flee to him for their salvation. And so let's look at that. Romans 4.24. Because again, Paul is summarizing these things and wanting us to, to know these things. So Romans 4.24 Starting in 23, but the words it was counted to him was not written, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So it is this resurrection that is pivotal. If he had died and stayed dead, he had no power over death. You can't say for sure he was who he said he was. But to conquer death, to live again, to be raised again, the power of, to have power over death showed that his sacrifice was sufficient. As then, Romans 10 verse 9, we must always remember, says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So keep in mind. It is not just that Jesus died and was raised again. So everybody gets to heaven. It is if you confess him as Lord. And if you believe in your heart. It says. And what all that means is it's not just mere external belief. I'll, I'll check this off. Okay that seems like a good religion. I'll go with that one. It's like believing in your heart. That God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. It's this inward conviction of this truth. Not just that he raised, but that he is also, as we're told in John, giving us this gift of faith that's uniting, uniting, uniting us to his death and uniting us to his resurrection in faith. And then third, as it gets better, it's, it is Christ Jesus who died, and the second, more than that, who was raised, but third, who is at the right hand of God. And so hold your place here and look at Hebrews chapter 1. Yeah, we're going all over the Bible, but Jesus is all over the Bible. So Hebrews chapter 1, just going to read verses 1 through 6. Again, we're talking about what does it mean to be at the right hand of God, which what it means is co-regency, which is he's on this throne, but also immediate access to God and the power of the throne So Hebrews 1, 1 through 6, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, and today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jehovah's Witnesses, this is where you take them. They have a little trouble with this passage. He's at the right hand of God, the majesty on high. He has been elevated. He came lowly in form of servant, uh, humbling himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, the shameful and painful death on a cross, so that God has now highly exalted him. So the name of Jesus, and he's given him the name above all names, the name of Jesus, every tongue shall, shall, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. This is our Jesus. And then Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1. So these are where you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians all together. These shorter letters of Paul. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, 
because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's talking to a church. He could just as well be talking about us. That the Lord God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all this is our God this is our Christ this is who we are him and the power and majesty given to us and we sometimes live like we're just nothing we're just a little group of people who gather together to talk about trains or something but instead of trains it happens to be Jesus in the Bible it's like that's you're not just a Bible study. You're a church of the resurrected Christ filled with him who is the head of our body. And we are in him. And he is in us. And you got to go a little bit more. Ephesians is a good letter. The whole Bible is pretty good. So Ephesians 2 verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And that's not your own doing, is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is he who is at the right hand of God the Father. And we are his bride, we are his church. We are his body. We are his temple. There's all these analogies that build up and build up. We're living stones being fitted together into a temple of God. So to be a light in the world, a shining city on the hill, this is who we are, encouraging one another. All the more as we see the day approaching, filled with the Holy Spirit, being able to, to read the Scriptures and apply the Scriptures and be able to, to pray with and for one another in the power of the Holy Spirit, not just thoughts and prayers that you're doing okay. Nothing wrong with thoughts and prayers, but a lot of people, who, it's like a cliche in our culture where people who don't, have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ are offering thoughts and prayers to people, and it's like that doesn't do a whole lot of good to nothing. Thank you for the sentiment, but are you praying to the Lord God of the universe through the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit? Don't ask the people that. You just say thank you. You know, if you want to do some evangelism, you can do it, and there's ways to do it in love, but this is who we are. Because it's Jesus Christ who died for us. More than that, who was raised. And he's seated at the right hand of God. And it gets better than that because the next thing that happens in Romans is who is interceding for us. 
interceding for us. That's a prayer where he's like, you know, I've, I have done everything that's necessary to be done to die on the cross. It is finished. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he's raised again, proving it's enough for our justification. And he's still at work. He is still at work, interceding for us. So we have his prayers. We have his power. We have his unity in the spirit. We're, we see through baptism, we're, we're put into him. We're, we're put, he's, he's cleansed us. He's, 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 he's given us himself and cleansed us by his spirit and given us new hearts. And he takes us to the Lord's table. And he's like, I am with you. I am always with you. And not only is he with us, but he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So... Got to go back to Hebrews again. Hebrews chapter 7. And it's thought, you know, who wrote Hebrews? And many people think it was Paul or some, because we don't, aren't told. But the best explanation I heard is that it may have been, I think, perhaps Timothy, who's recording a sermon of Paul's, which could be an interesting thought. But Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 says this. The former priests were many in number because they prevented... They were prevented by death from continuing the office. So you had priests in the Old Testament. They sacrificed animals. They prayed to God on behalf of the people. But um, they die and have to have somebody else that comes in. They have a high priest, and he would die, and somebody else would have to, to come in. But Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Just, just listen again. Look at that again and see all this, where Jesus Christ is involved in this process. It's, it's every step of the way. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost. All right, he's, he's the one doing it. He's able to save to the uttermost. Who? Those who draw near to God. Okay, so if I draw near to God, Jesus, you're going to do something for me. No, you're going to draw near to God through me. Okay, so we're drawing near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is how we know that he can save to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. And the best example you can see of this, maybe the clearest example is Acts chapter 7. So turn with me to Acts chapter 7. This is the, the first deacon, Stephen, is preaching to the people. I guess it's okay for deacons to preach to the people, but see what happens. He, 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 he's putting them straight on, on things that are going on. So Acts seven fifty one, he's proclaiming Christ to these people, the, 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 the nation of Israel, the Jewish people today. And here's how he's finishing it. Sounds like a deacon. You stiff-necked people. Elders don't talk like that a whole lot, but those deacons, they'll, they'll do that. That's why we let them present the budget. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now he, is talk, they are, he is speaking to non-believers, not believers. You stiff-necked people. And he's also speaking in the Holy Spirit. And so this is what he is saying. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? I mean, man, that's rough. That'd be like somebody standing up in front of a church and saying, which, similar to, which of the preachers did you not drive out of here? 
Which of the preachers did you not stone with stones? Which of the good people that came into your church did you not drive away? He's like talking about the prophets of God. Which of the prophets did you not persecute? And they killed those and they killed those who have announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, two ways for this conversation to go, they were cut to the heart and they repented of their sins. And many of them were baptized and turned to the Lord. That happens. But unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. And that's not what happened here. They heard these things and they were enraged. Sometimes that is the response of the gospel to people. And they ground their teeth in him. And he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. This is, this, it's been said that God gives you more grace when you need it. And we always need God's grace. But in special times, the grace of God. You hear people who are persecuted for their faith. There's just these almost miraculous occurrences where God is like, the, the death of his saints is precious to him. And when you have the satanic forces of evil in the world arraying against one of his saints who are dying or being persecuted, he is for us. So verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Standing. It's like he's seated at the right hand of God. This is happening. He's up on his feet and he is standing and he's giving Stephen a glimpse into heaven. and He's letting him see something and he is standing for him. And he says, Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears, which is what the world does. And they rushed together with him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Which means they all picked up stones and grabbed them, good stones that would fit in your hand well, and hurled them toward him, hopefully hitting him in his head to kill him. Many people doing this at the preaching of the word of God. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who is Paul who's writing Romans and is telling us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father and he remembers surely watching the garments of those stoning Stephen as he cries out with a loud voice, I see Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. And now he knows he did indeed see that as he gave full do it, he says to the people. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. I wonder how often Paul remembers that prayer and is thankful for it himself, that Stephen interceding for Paul even. Don't hold this against Paul, Saul. Don't hold it against any of these people. Which is exactly what Jesus Christ says on the cross. Father, you know, they know not what they do. And so when we are being, you know, how often 
who knows what may happen to us in the future, but when things are occurring and the flesh, the world, Satan, things are throwing us down, when things have grabbed us, there's charges being made, whether it's your flesh, the world, or Satan, when these things are occurring, we are precious in God's sight. We're chosen. We're elect. We're his people, the love before the foundations of the world. And then we see Stephen's love for the people too, which is a result of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. It isn't just God to love you how you love me. It's like, gosh, I just want to love the church too. It's hard to do because you know how we are. But if Stephen can pray for Jesus not to hold that sin against them that happened to him, we surely can say the stones, the slaps, the besmirches, the words, the whatever, the sideward glances, we too can say, forgive them. And then help me from the heart to also forgive. Because that's God's love being poured into our hearts. But remember, Stephen was stoned for telling them the truth. And God is for us. And that is good news in Christ Jesus. So who can be against us? So we are, therefore, to serve him boldly. To follow him closely. Even when your own sinful flesh, again, raises up and accuses you and says, unworthy, unworthy. And you can say, no, it's Christ Jesus who died for us. Who was raised for me. Who was at God's right hand praying for me, praying for us. And we have to just say what a great love the Father has for us. What a great love Christ has for us. is What a great salvation. So let's pray. Father God. Sending your son to taste death and not just death, but your wrath for us and for Jesus to be separated from that love for a time. Looking forward to that and saying, if it's possible for this cup to pass, Lord, and it was not possible. This is the only way of salvation or Jesus would not have endured this for us. But we thank you, God, that you are for us. We thank you, Christ Jesus, that you are for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit given to us, that we might be united to, us, to you, and we might have a peace that does truly surpass understanding, a joy that goes beyond the hardships and the pain where we can sing with the, the songwriter, I see the rainbow through the rain, and know that God's promises are not vain for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we thank you and pray that you will continue to make us more and more aware of these things. In your name we pray. Amen.